0: Well, good morning again. Uh, Before Lent started, we were reading the story of the first Christians together from the book of Acts. And uh, we're going to go back to that this morning. And we'll stay in Acts until early June. Um, So I'm going to read from Acts 10, verses 1 through 23 for us. You can follow along uh, where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible. You can just listen as I read from Acts 10. It's a, a strange story and a beautiful one with not one but two visions inside it. So this is Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God Come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called, called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel to spoke to him, who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted to something wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called up to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, like we always do, that you'd be happy to use this word, this strange story that isn't immediately clear to us, that you'd be happy to use this story to show us the grace of Jesus again. That you'd meet every one of us wherever we find ourselves this morning. Those of us who are here who have faith and those of us here this morning who don't. Those of us who feel far away from you. Those of us who feel close to you. Meet even those of us who aren't sure why we're here. Show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. Make us into different people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the other day, I heard uh, an ad on the radio for one of those job recruiting websites. And one of the selling points in the ad um, was that they said that they could help help employers make sure that the people that they were recruiting could actually do the job they're recruiting for um, by administering skill tests to them. Uh, It seemed like a totally reasonable thing, a good selling point, but I have to tell you that when I heard this term skill test, I I had a a rush of emotion. It wasn't uh, quite shame, but it was close. It was embarrassment or chagrin, and I'm going to tell you why. After I graduated from college, my plan um, was at first just to get a basic, low impact, low commitment job that I didn't have to think about when I left so that I could just pay the rent for the apartment I shared with my friends. I could buy groceries and just kind of live life uh, until I started seminary. So I went back to Baltimore and I got my stuff. I came back here to Chicago. It was 1994, it was a World Cup year. And so I confessed I watched a lot of soccer at the beginning of that summer instead of job hunting. By the middle of the summer, I really, really needed a job. (laughs) So I started applying in all kinds of places. And one of my friends told me about this frame shop, this artist frame shop that had a Help Wanted sign. It seemed like a pretty cool job to me. You get to work with art. You get to work with your hands. You learn a new skill. Uh, so I applied, and I was pretty happy to get an interview. And I was pretty cocky when I sauntered into that interview. And everything was going great. I had an easy rapport with the interviewer. I thought I was making a pretty good impression on her. I thought I was really, honestly, just minutes away from being offered exactly the kind of job that I wanted. It was a great interview until she said, well, obviously we use a lot of math around here. So I'm going to need you to solve these math problems. And she slid a piece of paper with a bunch of numbers on it across the table at me a skill test. (laughs) Now to say that this was deflating to me um, would be a grave understatement. This was the moment that I knew I was sunk. My math skills were rudimentary and mostly forgotten at that point and there were a lot of fractions on that page. I did not pass that test. I did not get that job. And I drove away thinking, wow, I thought I was going in for a job interview, but something zagged, and then I ended up in a math exam. And I think that is a little bit how Acts 10 works. It looks like one thing when the story begins, and then it zags and turns into something else altogether. The story of Peter and Cornelius is the longest single narrative in the book of Acts. We actually only read about a third of it. And at the beginning, on the surface of things, it sounds like it's a story about the conversion of this really powerful, really influential pagan Roman centurion to Christianity. It sounds like a really unlikely conversion story, and that definitely happens, and it's important. But I think the main force of the story in the life of the early church and in our lives turns out to be about something else altogether. It is about a conversion for the Apostle Peter. Peter changes. He goes from being a man who is bound by racial and religious intolerance to a man who can eventually get to the place where he says, truly, I understand That God shows no partiality. I think there's something in this story for every one of us, no matter where we find ourselves this morning. So the story starts in Caesarea. It was an important harbor town on the Mediterranean Sea. It had been built by Herod the Great and all of the land and sea trade in and out of that region was forced through Caesarea, of course so that the Roman Empire could get their hands on the revenues from taxes and tariffs. Caesarea was also a major import point for grain from Egypt. The empire was very dependent on grain from Egypt, so it's no surprise that a town of this significance had a garrison of Roman soldiers stationed there. You didn't want to lose control of a place like that. So the Italian cohort was there. would have been made up of about 600 soldiers. And this man, Cornelius, was in charge of a 100 of those soldiers. And you need to know that no matter where they lived in the empire, centurions represented the power of the empire. They represented Roman power. They could snap their fingers and have a man flogged or killed. They could say one sentence and have a man's family taken away from him, his livelihood taken away from him. They were often brutal, and that's exactly how Rome liked them. But this man, Cornelius, is very much against type. Luke says he is devout and that he feared God, that he was generous with his money, that that this Roman centurion was actually a man of prayer. It's an incredibly, incredibly unlikely description for a Roman centurion church. And it's obvious that he was fed up with something and he was looking for something substantial that he knew that he didn't have. He had a deep respect for God's people. He had a deep respect for their God. He saw something in their faith that had a substance that he did not and could not find in the idle cults of Rome. Instead of capricious, mercurial gods, who didn't really seem to care a whole lot about what happened to humans, he saw this other God, the God of the Jewish people, who bound himself to that people in love, even if it didn't make sense for him to bind himself in love. And he was drawn to him and to them. Maybe there are some of us here this morning, and we're here because we have gotten fed up with whatever it is that we had, And we wanted something more, something more substantial. Maybe that's what has led some of us to Christianity. Maybe others of us haven't exactly come that far, but we're wondering about it. Because we know, of course, that our culture, it doesn't offer up a pantheon of capricious, careless gods to worship. Not in the way that Rome did. But a little bit of reflection reveals the gods that it does offer up and they are just as weightless. They lead to just as many dead ends in our lives. The commodification of every single part of our lives. That's a god. The obsession with status or celebrity or the appearance of power. The a lure of sexual satisfaction, no matter what it costs the people around us. The ever present, often rewarded temptation to become lost in our work. An obsession with being entertained always. Addictions of all kinds. These things are as empty as they are corrosive to being genuinely human. And so what what Cornelius suspected was that there had to be something more out there. There had to be something that was real out there, something that would make him more fully human and not less so. And I just want to say, if you hear that haunting sound that there has to be something more, something real, something that will make you more human and not less so, please do not tamp that down. Do not insulate yourself from that holy kind of discontent. Fuel it. Fuel that holy discontent. So Cornelius is looking for it. He's trying to live it before he even knows what it is. And he's praying for it. And one day he has this vision and he's terrified and he hears God tell him, send some men over to this other port town called Joppa and have them bring back this guy named Simon Peter. Now, he doesn't even know who Simon Peter is. He doesn't even know why this is happening, but he sends the men anyway. And then the scene shifts. (laughs) They start making their way, and then we see Peter. Peter is on the roof of the house that he's staying in, and he's praying, and he's hungry. And so some people go down to fix him a bite to eat, and as that's happening, Peter... Has his own strange vision. He sees the heavens open. He sees something like a great sheet descending to the earth. And when it finally drops down in front of him, it's filled with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And while that squirming load of animals is in front of him, he hears a voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> This is horrific to Peter. Absolutely horrific to Peter. And we know it's horrific because he refuses the command. He says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything common. Never eaten anything unclean. So now we know that at least some of the animals in that vision are animals that would have been considered unclean and off limits for Peter to eat according to the Jewish law. So maybe... Maybe Peter refused the first time because he thought God was testing him. I don't know. But I do know that the next thing that he heard would have been deeply unsettling, like life-altering unsettling for him. What God has made clean, do not call common. And that scene plays out two more times. and, And two more times, Peter refuses the request. Two more times, he hears the voice, listen, Peter. What God has called clean, don't call common. Luke tells us that Peter was perplexed. He started to try to figure out what it meant. So let's stop for a second and talk about that ourselves. See, this is where the story zags. It looked like it was heading in one direction, and now it's heading in another direction altogether. So first, there's the food. Peter had lived his whole life following jewish dietary laws and he did it for the same reason that everyone else around him did it because god had told them to do it it made them marked out it made them different from all of the nations surrounding them and now in this vision it looks for all the world that god is trying to tell peter that for some reason those laws are not necessary anymore now peter had heard jesus teach about this We heard about Jesus teaching that in the gospel lesson this morning, where Jesus says it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. I don't know, maybe that was so confusing to Peter when Jesus said it that he drew a circle around it and he kind of hid it with all the other stuff that Jesus said that he didn't understand. But here it is again. There's definitely something with food going on. But that's really just the entry point. Over time, all kinds of traditions developed, all kinds of traditions began to be erected around the food laws in the Old Testament. And at first, these traditions were probably just ways of trying to make it easier to keep the law. But like human traditions often do, they went bad. They got sour. And they became a litmus test for determining who was really spiritual Who was really an insider? Who was really one of the good guys? Those traditions became ways to exclude people and then they became sledgehammers. They didn't just exclude. These traditions became the fuel for intolerance and bigotry and racism. God's people started making up names for Gentiles, started telling Stories about him. If I repeated them to you, we would all blush. We would blush with shame. Now, I'm not saying Peter was like that. There's no evidence at all that Peter was like that. But that's the world that he swam around in. That was the culture that he had been raised in. And it created, we have to see this church, it created a huge blind spot for Peter when it came to thinking about people like Cornelius. When it came for Peter, thinking about someone named Cornelius hearing the good news of Jesus and coming to Jesus and becoming a Christian, I mean, Peter thought to himself, sure, I I definitely want him to become a Christian. But Peter assumed that if a guy like Cornelius was going to become a Christian first, he had to become like Peter. He had to be like me before he could be a follower of Jesus. So what would it take? What would it take to open up that blind spot so Peter could start to see people differently, so that he could start to live and to love like Jesus lived in love, inviting outsiders, inviting the unclean, inviting the scandalous right into the very heart of things, into the center of things. What would it take to change a guy like Peter? Well, I guess it would take a super shocking and weird vision, because that's what he got. And this is where we realize that that vision isn't only about food. In the end, it's about something infinitely more important than food. It is about people. And you know, of course, we live in a world, too. We swim around in a culture, too. And no matter how intelligent and educated and street-smart and savvy we are, hopefully we'll also be wise enough to be humble and to say, we have blind spots when it comes to other people too. We have them. And that has all kinds of effects. We, you know, whichever we we imagine ourselves to be part of and in a room this size it's a bunch of different we's maybe we are more than one we but whatever we we imagine ourselves to be a part of are tempted to look down on those who are other we have our own litmus tests we have our own sledgehammers And we, the insiders, look down on the outsiders. It happens in just about every version of we you can think of. In race, in education, in socioeconomic status, in political views, in views of justice, in theological positions, denominational affiliations. We even happens and other even happens when we think about the stuff that we do with our free time. And this has a damaging effect, this we and othering. And it has the damaging effect of exclusion. So what would it take to make people like us see differently? And to start to live in love like Jesus did and to invite the other, the outsider, the scandalous, right into the center of things so that they can meet him and hear from him and be changed by his grace just like we have. What would it take? Well, that's what Acts 10 is about. And it makes us ask, what is on that sheet descending from the heavens for me and for you? What's on it? That is a pointer to our own exclusion. The ways that we other other people. Who is on that sheet descending from the heavens? What do we hear in the voice from heaven so I love how this story unfolds (laughs) while Peter's up on the roof trying to figure out what in the world this vision meant the three men from Cornelius roll up to the front gate and while he's pondering it Luke says the spirit speaks to him and says hey there's three men looking for you go down and go with them without hesitation because I've sent them to you Peter doesn't know it yet But he is about to find out the deep meaning of the vision he has just had. The gate swings open and Peter realizes all at once that these are not three guys like him popping over for a visit. They don't look like him. They don't talk like him. They for sure don't eat like him. And now he, the insider, has come face to face with the outsider, the other And it's not a fluke. They're not lost. They're not asking for directions. They're not trying to borrow a cup of sugar. They know it and Peter knows it. They're all standing there face to face by divine appointment. They have been swept up into a story that they did not construct. And it's probably a little bit weird for all of them. And it's beautiful. And Peter doesn't hesitate. He says, I'm, I'm the one. I'm Peter. What are you here for? And they explain about Cornelius, the centurion, the Roman, the outsider who's looking for something more. And they tell him about the vision and, hey, we want you to come back to Caesarea because this guy, he wants to hear what you have to say. And the next line in the story, I think is my favorite line in the story. And he invited them in to be his guests. He invited them in. To be his guests. You got to be tired. Spend the night here. Eat at my table. And we'll go back in the morning. He invited them in to be his guests. Peter acts like Jesus. (laughs) And you know what? Peter caught no end of grief for it. No end of grief. The people didn't understand how he could do something like that. At the beginning of chapter 11, the leaders in the church at Jerusalem, they get after Peter for it. They can't believe he ate with those guys. They can't believe that he actually went to that guy's house. And church, this moment is the beginning of a big and desperately, desperately important controversy in the common life of the first Christians. And it continues to be something that we need to learn from today. Are we going to close ranks or are we going to follow after Jesus and make space in our homes and at our tables and in our lives for people to hear the good news of Jesus? We didn't read this part of the story, but I love what Peter says when he gets to Cornelius' house. He says, now you know I'm not, really, I'm not supposed to associate with you. I'm not supposed to visit with you, but God showed me something. Truly, I understand God shows no partiality. God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. Peter doesn't care how scandalous it will seem. He does not care how misunderstood he will be. And my prayer is that we will see and do that God will use whatever he needs to use in our lives to continue to grow us into a people who make space in our lives, at our tables, in our homes, in neighborhoods all across the city, for the outsider and the other to hear and experience and be changed by the grace of Jesus, just like we have. Let me pray for us. Father, grow this in us grow this in us it took you supernaturally doing something for peter so odd so troubling to everything that he knew about how he was raised as a kid how he had lived his life you had to really trouble it so that he could start to live in love like jesus did and we ask that you would do the same for all of us as individuals and as a church So that we could live and we could love like we have been loved by Jesus. Do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.